This is Wading Deep, a podcast that explores the connection between environmental justice and race. Racism pollutes our people and land. Resilience, our strength of spirit and hand. Resurrection, our healing, made whole we stand. I'm your host, the Reverend Jamon Taylor, rector at St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina, a congregation with a long history of challenging environmental racism. I am honored to welcome today's guest, Carmera Thomas, Director of Urban Conservation Initiatives at the Conservation Fund. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Honored to have you. Do you mind telling us about yourself and the work of the Conservation Fund? Sure. Um, so I am the Director of Urban Conservation Initiatives at the Conservation Fund. Um, and before that, I worked for a regional nonprofit organization in Maryland focusing on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and I am a community organizer, but also with a background in biology, have an efficiency, uh, um, a love for science and um, the connection to science and people. Um, so that is what I bring to the Conservation Fund and working with our Parks with Purpose program, which is um, creating vibrant communities through green infrastructure and park space um, with a community-based approach. Fantastic. I also think you have a Rocky Mount connection. Is that correct? I do. I went to undergrad at North Carolina Wesleyan College. My spouse being from Rocky Mount would appreciate that. Oh, nice. I loved it there. Best four years of my life. <laughs> so what is environmental racism in your own words? Um. I believe that environmental racism um, is really just the oppression, systematic oppression of low income communities of color, especially black, Latino and indigenous communities that are excluded from the environmental movement, but also overburdened by um, environmental health issues and pollution and environmental hazards. Why do you think this work is, is so important, uh, bringing awareness to environmental racism? Well, I think it is um, very important to bring that to the work um, to really think about racism as a whole in America and how that um, affects all systems, including the environmental movement as well. Um, I think it's important to highlight the disproportionate um, overburdened communities that are vulnerable to health hazards and environmental injustice. Um, it's really important to connect the human experience to the environmental movement and nature. So it's really important to think about um, that as a holistic approach to think about how human and shared experiences also connect to nature and also the injustice that is happening here in America, but also in the environment. How did you get involved in this? Was there something that happened, a childhood experience? Um, well, first and foremost, I'm a Black woman in the environmental sector, so I've definitely experienced some discrimination um, in my role in different organizations. Um, I've also worked with a lot of community members and leaders who have dealt with issues like flooding and uh, connecting them to resources using the power that I have um, allowed me to just learn from their experience. Um, and I have 
worked in many different communities and with a lot of people and recently learned a lot about my grandfather who worked in um, agriculture for extension for the University of Maryland. So that really connected me more to the work, but understanding that there are definitely injustices in every sector of life um, and seeing that really show up in the environmental um, space has really led me to be passionate and also advocate for this work. I appreciate your talk and comment about um, systems and systematic oppression. And when we think about systematic oppression, we obviously go to topics like policing or the economy. A lot mm -hmm. of times we don't think about uh, the environment, uh, nature, um, mm -hmm. as being a victim of systematic oppression. Can you talk about that, how you see that, uh, even perhaps coinciding with race? Sure. Um I think just connecting environmental issues with social and economic issues um, really stems from what people are, are dealing with. The opportunity for sustainable and healthy neighborhoods exist. Um, there are tools and resources that are um, out there, you know, financial resources to create vibrant and um, healthy communities. So it's important to highlight the issues, um, but also understand that there are solutions um, whether it's through green infrastructure or urban farming, um, or even mitigating stormwater issues. A lot of the environmental injustice that I have seen um, is really dealing with flooding and, and climate change impacts um, or air quality. And I think just understanding that there are systems that are um, forms of oppression through the process of how people get involved in their community through environmental work, um, how a lot of people of color especially Black and Latino and Indigenous communities have been left out of that, um, out, left out of those conversations and not been a part of those policies and procedures that are put into place for their neighborhoods and for their communities. So it's really important to highlight the environmental issues, but understanding that racism does have an impact and an influence on all of the systems that we're dealing with. Your mentioning of stormwater and flooding resonates with me. St. Ambrose is ground zero. We are in the floodplain. Our neighborhood, Rochester Heights, experiences flooding. And when you talk about systems of oppression, particularly all of the development that's happening upstream means that the water that's not treated on site flows right past the congregation, right past the yes. church into mm -hmm. a neighborhood that's already flooding. Mm -hmm. um, your, your title as director of urban conservation initiatives is intriguing. And I'm wondering if you could talk more about that and uh, more about your work really as a systems changer. Sure. Um, well, the Conservation Fund really is understanding of the intersectionality of social justice issues um, and environmental issues and how to address them collectively. So solutions come from communities, um, grassroots organizing, engaging with decision makers, and stakeholders who have the power in their neighborhood to influence change, um, assisting communities with creating opportunities for um, green space access and green infrastructure to mitigate some of those stormwater issues, building capacity in neighborhoods. So there are folks that are um, part of green teams and, and earning income through maintaining the park space and engaging their community in the parks and green space. Um, so it's really, identifying the issue, but also working with communities and local organizations to see where the power is and how this, um, those spheres of influence are able to make those changes. 
So we are supporting those organizations and supporting communities to come up with these different solutions for those environmental issues and injustices. Do you mind talking about some of the things you've observed, maybe some specific examples of what communities have done? Yeah, sure. So um, I know that in North Carolina right now, we're working with communities in um, Biltmore Hill and Rochester Heights to increase green space and a greenway access um, through the Bailey Drive Gateway um, project. And also in Atlanta, where we also have focus, we have um, supported a lot of park um, development. So community spaces that people gather, where art is incorporated, where there are just really great spaces for children and, and families to play safely, um, and also supporting the main maintenance of those spaces through community engagement and community building. Um, in Washington, D.C., we're doing very similar work in a park space in a national park, but supplementing um, National Park Service um, opportunities. So community members are engaging with folks as they're coming into the park and creating activities and sharing the history along the river and um, of the space in the park, um, especially in relation to Black history and, and communities that have always lived there and occupy that space. Um, and also just thinking about placemaking and reclaiming space. So <clears throat> there are communities in Durham that are reclaiming their land um, and just really thinking about all the opportunities to provide jobs and green space and access and fresh food. So just thinking about a holistic approach to environmental issues and being able to support that is really important to the Conservation Fund and our Parts with Purpose program. That holistic approach is crucial. Uh, we're not only talking about um, conserving wildlife or plant life, but really people's health, um, quality of life, homes, mm -hmm. jobs. Um, and a lot of times we are pigeonholed in our thinking and don't have that holistic approach. So I'm excited to hear of the work the Conservation Fund is doing. Um, did you do similar work in, in previous posts or previous assignments? Yes, yeah, so my uh, previous job, I worked directly with communities in Baltimore City. So we supported projects that um, renovated vacant lots and revitalized green space, um, worked with urban farmers who were um, providing fresh food and access to young people and adults um, in communities, and also working directly with residents who are dealing with flooding. Um, so finding the resources through the city and the state level to um, mitigate some of that storm, some of those stormwater issues, and um, working with legislators to pass legislation, um, and also just hearing from their experience so that we could share their story and advocate for um, those solutions. So, I've been a part of this work for quite some time, um, even in my young career. So, um, before that, I was a community activist in my, you know, in my own neighborhood, just thinking about how you know green space access is important. I grew up in an area where um, we don't have access to water directly, um, poor water quality. So that has always been something that I've been really passionate about and grew up really caring about just from my background, um, living in Maryland and also working with communities in Eastern North Carolina when I was at um, school in Rocky Mount as well. Can you talk more about those, those early days um, growing up? Uh, what sparked this interest? Um, because it sounds like this has been a common thread throughout your life. 
Um, you know, honestly, it has a lot to do with my uh, parents and my grandparents. Um, I grew up spending summers at my grandmother's house with my cousins and um, she would take us out into the garden and we would plant tomatoes and we would go fishing on the weekends. And um, I think just my affinity for nature um, and feeling very um, at peace in nature has really um, brought me to this work. And then just seeing how it affects people. Um, and when you have the power to have access to those spaces, how it can really be life-changing and healing. Um, and I think that is just really important to understand that um, there is a human connection to nature and that we impact it and we can also restore it um, and be at peace in it. Um, I think it's also really important to understand as a, a Black person in particular that we are a part of nature and have always been a part of nature. Um, that is something that I've learned, you know, from my, from my parents and from my grandparents that um, they have always been farmers and, and cultivators and finding peace um, in this space. So that has just really um, why I love it and why I'm so passionate about it. No, your passion uh, shines through and I'm glad your, your voice and, and actions that you're making um, an impact in the community. One of the things you just mentioned um, was talking about or your phrasing that uh, Black people belong in nature. Um, when we read much of the literature, it says that uh, African-Americans, Black people actually do not enjoy being with na in nature, mm -hmm. which is really contrary to our experience um, as people in this country um, who for centuries were agrarian. Um, who were in nature to make that statement makes no sense. But when you survey it more, uh, the question would be, do you enjoy visiting Yosemite National Park? Well, not everybody can visit Yosemite National Park. That's so that's right. your benchmark for being in nature. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to go well. Um, can you talk more about uh, the ways in which you, you are observing uh, the Black community embracing nature? Sure. Um, you know, I think that statement comes from um, a different perspective. You know, people of color, Black people, Latino people um, experience nature differently. Um, Black people in particular might have a negative connotation with nature, um, a, a fear of being in the outdoors, in the, un in the unknown because um, of what Black people have experienced outdoors in nature or being... Um, feared of being alone um, in nature. So I think that is something to think about and to understand and acknowledge. But it is really important to also um, have positive experiences in the outdoors. So we might not be you know, going camping every weekend, but being outside at a community cookout or with our family or enjoying the beach. Um, those are some of the experiences that I have in my family and also know a lot of my friends and colleagues who are people of color enjoy, enjoy nature in that way. Um, and yes, it is all about access and, and transportation to and from these national parks and spaces. Um, not being able to get there is a really big impact on how you experience those national parks and spaces. Um, but I know that when the education and awareness and opportunity is there, um, there are definitely formative experiences that happen in those spaces and in those acts when you have access to that space. You're spot on. 
Um, Yosemite is not the only benchmark. You meant, mentioned going to beaches, gardening. Um, mm-hmm. the, this is being in nature. Access is another component when we talk about um, systemic racism mm-hmm. and blockades. Uh, I used to live in, in New York. And one of the reasons that the bridges that lead to um, the New York and Long Island beaches are their height is that it does not allow for city buses to pass mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. So even in the inter- infrastructure of designed it such that a demographic or group of people cannot gain access right. because city buses cannot pass under the bridges. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's all around us. All around us, yes. What have been some ways you have seen uh, that have been helpful to get more community members involved? Um, one of the things when we talk about community organizing, it can be challenging to get community buy-in. And I'm curious, has that been your experience? Um, and what has worked in getting more community involvement? Um, yeah, I think it's important to listen first. So um, I, when identifying envi- some environmental issues and thinking about a community, um, it's important for organizations or decision makers to take a step back and think about their past influence and their past impact on communities of color and just listening to how people want to experience um, nature in in the outdoors, understanding their issues and what they're dealing with. Um, uh, I've talked previously about my, my job before the Conservation Fund and working for an organization that's really focused on the Chesapeake Bay. You might not think that Baltimore City is as close to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and when people hear about that organization, they're like, well, what can you do for me? How can you understand what I'm going through? You are right on the bay. You have access to the water. You have access to this green space. I'm in a city. What does that mean for what I'm dealing with um, in the sense of uh, flooding issues. A lot of that was because it's all piped underground and you know what happens on the street affects what's going on in the Chesapeake Bay and how that affects water quality and air quality and their overall health as a community. Um, so bringing that education and awareness, but also understanding that organizations have to listen first and hear what people are going through, but also how they want to experience that space. It can't be um, you know, someone going in and saying, well, this is what might be good for you based on what we want to do with this space or this or in your community. Um, it really has to be based on the community and, and hearing what they have to say and, um, and then putting that to action and showing up. Um, it might take some time to build those relationships. Um, and that's okay. If you're in it to really make a difference, you have to take the time to do that, build those really um, authentic and genuine relationships to hear and listen. And it's not just a transactional relationship. It has to be um, your relationship where you're learning from one another, but then you're also implementing those um, implementation and actions um, on the ground as well. I like your statement about relationships. Sometimes it can be transactional, meaning that some group comes up with the solution that was decided on the outside and then get someone in the community to implement the solution. It may not be the right solution, but mm-hmm. the fact that it's transactional almost means that it doesn't work because who better to decide about the solution than those who are on the ground. Absolutely. 
I know you've done quite a bit of work, not only in communities, but also partnering with governmental agencies. Um, Sometimes people in the community may see uh, government as an adversary, perhaps Mm -hmm. good reason. When we look at uh, the, the legacy of government and oppressed people, that always has not been the best relationship. And so the currency of trust is not always there. Can you talk about your experience of helping communities uh, work with governmental entities, elected officials, um, and have you seen trust grow between both groups? Sure. Um, Well, at the Conservation Fund, we really rely on those relationships in local communities and with um, local government and municipalities. Um, It's really important to have an on-the-ground partner that works well with government or the local organization to get this work done. Um, because we don't have as many staff as we would like to have in all of these spaces. So we really rely on those local partnerships. Um, I've also experienced a lot of, you know, education and awareness that, you know, communities understand with working with an organization like the Conservation Fund or my previous organization, where then they have the tools and the language to go to their elected official and speak on behalf of themselves and their community and advocate for policy changes and um, you know programs to be implemented in their in that space. So it's really important to know who your champions are, know where you can advocate and understand the full issue, and then um, be able to speak up and speak up for yourself and, and leverage that power and policy, um, and also leverage the relationships that you have. Um, when people hear, oh, you're, we're working with the conservation fund or another organization. Um, people listen, you know, they're like, oh, okay, you know, you have the support of this organization, you have the support of people who are um, influential, I think that means a lot. And when you have that social capital, that's just as important as financial capital. Absolutely. And you mentioned one of my favorite words, power. Um, (laughs) A lot of time people have a negative association with the word power, which simply means the ability to do. Um, And when people embrace their power and become empowered, they can do things that they thought were impossible. Um, And you laid out really a great roadmap of how someone on the ground can build relationships with different entities to help change their current situation. Yes. Yes, that's so important. Um, We all have power and it just depends on how we use it and how um, we use that influence. What do you find gives you hope these days? Wow. Um, You know, it gives me hope that people are having conversations about environmental injustice, environmental movement um, in many different spaces and communities. Um, I get hope from young people who talk about the injustices and want to fight for their communities. Um, I also get really Uh, hopeful when I hear um, and work for organizations that are really taking a step back to listen and be authentically involved and engage with community members um, to drive and address environmental issues and challenges. Um, It just also gives me hope to see more people that look like me involved in this space. Um, When I first started working, um, I was probably the only person of color in the room, the only woman in the room, and that is changing and shifting. Um, A lot of my friends who work in this space, um, it's just really refreshing to see that and to know that 
we are starting to uh, take that seat at the table and have that influence and, and power to make decisions for our community. Could not have been said any better. Thank you so much, Kamara, for being with us um, and sharing your life experience and wisdom. Thank you. It was a pleasure. The Wading Deep podcast comes to you from a place we affectionately call the Bros, St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, The Bros NC on Twitter, and The Bros 1868 on Instagram. I am your host, the Reverend Jamond Taylor. Gods are going to trouble the water of environmental racism, resurrecting a river of life clear as crystal. Shalom. Salam. Peace.